My name is Natalie, and this is Chelsea, and we're the hosts of The Daily Reframe, a podcast dedicated to exploring the application of a growth mindset through the stories and experiences of others. Today's episode deals with drug use and addiction. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please contact the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration by calling 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Full names have been redacted from this episode to respect the privacy of those referenced. Thank you and enjoy episode three. Hey everyone, welcome back for episode three of the Daily Reframe podcast. So we're going to be honest, uh, this is not the first guest episode we had planned for you all. But given that September is National Recovery Month, we wanted to bring you the story of someone who has regained their life back from addiction by reframing their approach to recovery. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bryce Givens to the podcast. Welcome to the show, Bryce. What up? Thanks for having me on. Thanks yeah, for coming. Yeah. Uh, we were glad that um, you could be here, especially uh, you are a very busy guy these days, which we will get into. But uh, I thought it would be I, I like I like chronology. What can I say? So what do you think about going back to the very beginning? How I know you um, kind of like where this all kind of started? Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's jump right in. First of all, I want to just say thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing. And um, I love the title of your show, The Daily Reframe. Uh, That is one of the things that I really try to employ in my life and the people who I work with. Um, the members of our community who will we'll kind of dive into what I do, but um, it's perfect. I think it's fantastic. And and so oftentimes, you know, people look outside for answers and really everything can be found from within, um, especially with how you perceive the world. And if you can change your thoughts, you can change anything else. Um, so yeah, we'll jump right in. All right. So for background, Bryce and I went to J.K. Mullen High School together. While we weren't close, we had mutual friends. Here's the thing. You didn't have to be close to Bryce to see the promising football career that he had before him. Bryce was the golden boy of Mullen football. He was incredibly charismatic and intelligent. I don't know. It was like he gave off an energy that made you feel like you could touch the stars too. That may not make sense, but I think it's probably one of the reasons why he was a three-year letterman, team captain, and named Mullen High School's offensive most valuable player. Here's the thing. Bryce wasn't just a big deal at Mullen. He received accolades locally and nationally and was a top college football prospect and at one point had the potential to be a first or second round NFL draft pick. In fact, Rivals.com tabbed him as the number two player in Colorado and the number 12 offensive lineman nationally. With these accolades, it was no surprise that some of the best schools in the country were vying for his attention. To put it simply, people wanted to be in his orbit and schools wanted him on their fields. But we wouldn't be here today if that had worked out. Bryce, please take us back to the start of your story and don't hold back. 
Yeah, I'll give you a rundown. So I, you know, was really straight edge growing up um, for the audience who doesn't know. My dad was a pro athlete. And so I grew up around, you know, pro athletes and, you know, the who's who of a lot of people like to say, um, you know, I tell them if, if like for an icebreaker moment or something like that, they'll give us, you know, two truths and a lie. And I always stump them because one of my truths is, I tell them that I lived with Michael Jordan and people are like, there's no way that you lived with Michael Jordan. Um, so my point being like, I was around athletes. I was around excellence. I was around, you know, superior um, athletic performers and achievers for my entire childhood. And so for me, I always wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and become a pro athlete. And I kind of was on that trajectory Um Going into Mullen, I think that was one of the reasons why I went to Mullen was because of their athletic program and to be coached by Coach Logan and their staff. And so for me, freshman year was like, you know, very strict, focused on school, focused on football, kind of had, you know, a map, so to speak, planned out. And then, um, you know, just with growing up and maturing and having different friend groups and, and whatnot. I first started smoking weed probably like sophomore year and immediately went from like smoking weed like once a week to like twice a week to like, I'm smoking 10 times a day, every day, all day, you know, manipulating staff, leaving school, not really caring about stuff because I was just like, smoking weed. And that was kind of like the persona that I took on. Now, with that being said, like I still was really focused on athletics. Fortunately for me, and I think this comes to comes to play in my story down the line, but um, I could rely on my natural ability and talent mm -hmm. and excel Definitely. just because I like was gifted. Um, and so yeah. I mean, it really just started there with like smoking weed and I wasn't much of a drinker. Um, our friend at a, uh, you know, a homecoming party almost died sophomore year of high school I remember from alcohol that. poisoning. I yeah. Remember and that. so that was pretty so rough. Bad. And so like, yeah, it was horrible. And you know, he ended up making it through, but, um, for me, alcohol really wasn't a problem, so to speak, because both of my parents are alcoholics. And so I'd grown up seeing like just the damage that alcohol does. Yeah. And so I was a weed smoker. And then I started to get more um, intrigued and Can excited about different drugs. Yeah, go ahead. Real quick. Do you, do you find that it was the community itself or like, was it, do you think this is something that is everywhere or? Sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but Mullen was an incredible institution, but there were there were some perspectives of it that there was a sense of entitlement and 100 percent. And that's yeah. when you hit the nail on that. You hit the nail on the head with that. And like entitlement was a huge thing. And, and that was something that I struggled with my entire life because. I mean, obviously my, my physical stature, like you develop a sense How tall I think are when you? you're maturing, I'm six, 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 six. So I'm a big dude. And I think, you know, again, just with my childhood of growing up around athletes and stuff, there's just like, I think socially 
acceptable sense of entitlement for a lot of athletes. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think I inherited some of those characteristics just by, by proxy. Um, so there was a little bit of that. And then I also think like, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right with like the culture and the community at Mullen, like the whole sense of Kamolan of Mullen, like when we were there was like, you know, we're the shit, like nobody can fuck with us. Um, and so that really starts to become part of your identity, so to speak. And even more so as like, you know, there's different like phases and cycles of it. And so it's like, oh, well, I'm a football player at Mullen. And so I'm in this football clique and there's this, you know, these expectations that you perform and like, we're going to let some of this other shit go. And so definitely, I mean, community is a huge aspect and I think Mullen's done a really good job and I've seen it over the years because I still stay in touch with, um, Mr. Keefe, who yes, who is he, the best. He's the best. Did you get yeah, your he's letter? The best. I so I, I funny enough, like I never had Keefe in class, but we, we just, still to this day like keep in touch. And like he came best. to Kayla and I's wedding celebration last weekend, and like, um, so I'm still kind of like involved somewhat in the Mullen community. Um, I've met with their their president. Uh, you know, last summer we talked. And so I still like to be a part of it. And I think that's the huge, you know, component of specifically what we're talking about is like community plays the biggest role in somebody's trajectory. I think, you know, they always say like the five people that you hang out with most is you are the sum of those five people. Yeah. Agreed. And so Agreed. when you're in, when you're in a situation to where like all your friends are kind of like partying and experimenting and stuff like that, I think there's some sense of that because then it like is more acceptable within your like Mm -hmm. certain echo chambers, if you will. Well, if everyone Um, else is doing it, right? right. Exactly. Then it's not that bad. If everybody's leaving to go, you know, leave campus, smoke a bowl over by the cemetery. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. That's, and that's true. And to answer your question too, like, I don't think that is unique just to Mullen. I think that's probably an experience that a lot of high schoolers have as they're trying to like develop their identity and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But that was definitely, you know, I think it's relatable to a lot of kids who are kind of going through these different phases, hormonal changes, stuff like that, trying to like develop who they are and learn who they are and develop an identity. So I don't think it's unique specifically to us, but I definitely think that um, it plays a huge role. Like you are who you're hanging out with. And if everybody's smoking weed and doing drugs and stuff, like you're going to do that too. And then me being the type of personality that I am, I'm like, cool, well, I'm going to push it to the next level. So then we started doing like (laughs) ecstasy, like every weekend and then start tripping acid and start. When was the first time you did ecstasy? So that was sophomore year too. And I remember that specifically, um, I went to what is now the Rhino district in Denver. It used to be just like a dilapidated industrial, like how crazy is that? How crazy crazy. five points turned into the flossy bougie art. It's crazy. It's wild, but it used to not be like that for anybody that knows. And I went to a rave, um, with that's really where my whole, like, eye-opening experience into other like harder drugs so to speak kind of really started Mm. and then like with my friend groups like with like those were my two best friends in high school and um you know we 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 partied hard and so it was always you know ecstasy kind of became the big drug that we were doing pretty frequently um i'd say 
you know, at least once or twice a month, um, if not more, and it started to become out of hand. And then we started to, you know, dive into pills and get into, you know, pharmaceutical stuff. Um, but for us, it was always like, we knew we were performing on the field. We knew that we, I was performing in the classroom. Um, and, and so I think again, to bring back up that entitlement thing is like, well, if I can do this and still excel, then like, I want to have fun and I want to do it. Not a real problem. If I'm right. checking all the boxes. Yep. Totally. I have a, I have a question. Cut in here, girl. Yeah. I have a question. Um, I'm raising my hand for anybody that can't see. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a very good student. Um, but do you think that you, there was ever, you ever used drugs as a way to escape who your dad was and like this big figure that you felt like you had to live up to in a way? Like, I'm just curious 100%. about that. Yeah. So like, yeah, you're totally, you're jumping into like year eight or nine into deep addiction. So, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> and like, I think a lot of, um, a lot Plus, of my quote unquote trauma, mm. right? Like people experience trauma in different ways, but I think a lot of my trauma kind of stemmed from that. So that's Got a it. really good insightful point. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That is just such it. We were having this conversation yesterday. Um, you know, parents, they love us. They do. They try to do right by us in every way possible. And, you know, they sometimes without, they don't, they don't mean to, right. but it's, yeah. you know, like the pressure, the amount, the pressure. Good it, intentions it, pave the path to hell, you yeah, know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, and, and it was never their intention, right? They were no. only just trying to do the best that they could yeah. um, with the tools and the skills that they had. And exactly. so, exactly. yeah, I mean, it's nothing on them, right? And it's like, it's my experience, right? And so totally, um, I think that's a really, really good point. And like, it's really important to bring up that like people start using drugs and alcohol for two reasons, right? To either turn on good feelings because they feel good or to turn off bad feelings. Right. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's, I think for me, part of it was like in developing like my identity personally, like I'm a pretty, I like to call myself really like an introverted extrovert because like, I am good at communicating with people. I like being social in certain settings, but I think inherently, like I'm kind of more introverted. And so you know, the whole like vibe of high school is like you're meeting people and learning new things and experimenting with things. And so like drugs were a way for me to kind of escape from like the present moment because I didn't want to deal with some of the quote unquote, again, scary things that you have to deal with and go through. So sure. that's, I think why initially why I was so like prone to wanting to like escape was because I just was uncomfortable with myself. Yeah. Mm sitting in discomfort it's totally. wild especially yeah. like you said those hormones start kicking in and it becomes overwhelming if you don't understand the importance of actually being able to sit with it or how to sit with it and make it a positive experience and yeah. totally reality is we weren't being you know given mental health wasn't an emphasis like we had guidance counselors uh at mullen and i'm 
at that time, what was that like 10, 15 years ago, right? Or 15 year reunions yeah. coming up like end of this month. Um, but we, it was almost just like a crapshoot. You were out there, your focus is getting to college. You had your ACTs, SATs, you know, make some yep. friends, have all these important experiences, live your best high school life. Um, but also deal with all these feelings of self-doubt or discomfort or confusion about who you are and what you're supposed to be. Totally. Like perfect nightmare. <laughs> it is. And especially if other people, right, if you're ill-equipped to kind of have the understanding of who you are going into situations like that, and then you have the outside, you have like external people saying like, Hey, um, you fit into this box or you're this person, or, Hey, you're a football player, or, Hey, you're an athlete, or, Hey, you're a, a student and you really excel in, in academics or, Hey, you're in whatever group it is. Right. And so you feel one way, but the world is, you know, feeding you with all this other shit about how you should feel. Yeah. And so like the disconnection with that is like, I think it's, it's hard for a lot of kids. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Right. And so, um, I think kids even today, like younger kids in high school today have it so much harder just because of like social media and stuff. Totally. And it's like, you know, they're the expectations of their perceived reality are so much different from what we went through. And I mean, it was hard for me, it was hard for us. So I can only imagine what they're going through, but rightfully so there is a lot more resources and tools and avenues for kids with mental health, um, struggles today, but yeah. it's still not where it needs to be for sure. No. I can't imagine being in high school with apps like Facetune when you can, or Oh my God, I had body image problems. I was a self-proclaimed cheeky meatball. And this, and to just the pressure of having to be doing little dances on Instagram or what is it? TikTok. I'm a dinosaur, right. I guess. TikTok is the, <laughs> is the thing everyone uses or whatever it is. And that constant comparison and oh, yeah. it, it just affirming what you aren't. Mm -hmm. oh, it's yeah. tough. It's tough. Crazy. And I think there is a direct correlation to the increase in social media and technology in our lives. Well, 100%. yeah, I think that that there's more resources for kids now because there has to be because these numbers mm -hmm. are going up, um, mm -hmm. which is it's awful. It but is. Sorry to um, kind of derail your story there. So we'll get your ecstasy. Then you're going with the harder stuff. LSD. When did that start? Yeah. Same, same, same time, probably around like junior year, junior, senior year. And by this point in kind of my trajectory from a football standpoint, you know, I was already getting some national recognition from big programs, um, you know, and was kind of on that national scale. I think junior year, I went to this like army all American combine where like the top whatever, 100, 200 players get invited to, to kind of do a combine. Um, and so at that point, like I was starting to get recruited by a bunch of schools and, um, knew that I would definitely have my, my choice on wherever I wanted to go to school. Um, so at that point it was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to work on my, my craft and work on my skills in football and continue to like do well. I mean, I skated by in school. Like I, I think I finished with like a three, eight GPA and I 
pretty much put forth zero effort. <laughs> um, so school Wait. wasn't a hard part for me. Um, now going into college. So I ended up going to CU Boulder for a couple of reasons. Um, like I mentioned, I was pretty highly recruited, could have gone wherever I wanted to and ended up deciding to go to CU for my ability to play early and also be close to my family. And I also, you know, kind of took a gamble that thinking that CU is kind of on the upswing and that we could become nationally prominent again. But um, in hindsight, that wasn't the case. So I go to CU. Um, you know, at this point in my addictive career, so to speak, was, um, you know, I was continuing to smoke weed every day. Again, really wasn't much of a drinker and would party, you know, with, I kind of got a taste for opiates um, towards the end of high school. So to go back to your point, Chelsea, about like dealing with living in my father's footsteps mm -hmm. that really became apparent once like I started college because yeah. now this like reality started to set in of like okay you're one step closer to like making it to the pros and like right. this could be an actual like career opportunity and so I think the pressure increased yeah um so from the the drug usage standpoint like definitely was continuing to use drugs anybody that knows boulder like boulder's wild um just like all school all colleges but yeah, colleges college is wild you know well that my brother went that's when his you know high school partying it turned into full-on just daily substance abuse totally and that yeah. was the case for me as well like i remember even just like my first summer getting up to school so this is the summer that we graduated high school because we had like workouts and stuff for the football team um i i got connected and again to bring back up community like i just got connected with the wrong group of people who weren't on my football team but were like just students and so we started partying and um you know started smoking opium and shit and uh where do you even really? get opium, Bryce? That's what I'm saying. Where like, do you even this... get opium? From some dude from Florida who... Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. Right. Now, this kid, he was taking summer classes and uh, he had some opium. And so I started, you know, I had, I'd messed around with pills before then, but um, that was the first time I really tried opium. And then from that point forward, um, I did have one teammate who was from Arizona who also, you know, had some addictive tendencies. And so we would hang out and, you know, we were in the dorms together. And a lot of colleges have their like athletes in their own dorms. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably a really good move, but yeah. Boulder's not like that. And so we had, you know, regular students in our dorms. And so just the partying scene was just like amplified and intensified and, you know, even in high school, my parents were like really, uh, they were pretty lax. Like we would have parties at my house all the time. Like my parents knew I smoked weed. So like we could smoke weed at the house. They just wanted us to be safe. Right. And so for a lot of people that go to college and they were kind of like hiding it or manipulating their parents or, or whatever, that really wasn't the case for me. Cause I already had a lot of freedom. Um, and so now with that, that aspect kind of amplified with like a bunch of kids who are now partying crazy and doing all kinds of shit. Like, obviously like I wanted to take part in that and be a part of that. And so, um, that's when my first real runaround with heroin came about. 
uh, was freshman year of college. And this is during the season. And I redshirted that year. And so for those of you who don't know what redshirting is, is basically in, in the NCAA, you have five years of eligibility to, mm -hmm. to play sports. Um, and so what they do typically for athletes who, like in my, my case, like I just wasn't big enough yet. Like I was probably 250 pounds and I needed to get to about 275 or three yeah 275 plus Bulkier. and so what they'll do is they'll they'll redshirt you and so i redshirted my freshman year and um so you know i didn't really have football because i wasn't playing in games i was practicing with the team and i was doing all the stuff but like i didn't really have any like responsibilities and so um partying just like intensified and College is a little bit different than high school from an academic standpoint. Like you really kind of just have to show up. Whereas like at Mullen, I could still not really show up or be present um, and still get good grades. But college, you kind of just got to go. Um, and I wasn't going. And so that coupled with like the intensity of me now not only experimenting with heroin, but like doing it on a frequent basis. And what we would do is like, um, we would get some heroin and put it in like a nasal bottle and just mix it up with water. And so we would do it na like through nasal drip. I um, did not even know you could do that. Yeah. Yep. And that's how I started with it. Yeah. It's crazy. I didn't know until then either. Okay. So, yeah. So that was, um, that's where it really started to intensify and like by mid mid fall, probably right around. October, November, um, I knew like shit was real. And so I went and talked to, um, this guy, Brad Bedell, who is one of the reasons I went to see you. I went to see you for these two coaches, Brad Bedell and Jeff Grimes. Um, mm -hmm. they both were, I mean, they're still coaching. They're both like head coaches and they're crushing it. Um, but I went there because they both had played in the NFL and they were just amazing coaches. So I went up to Brad Bedell. He was the the offensive GA at the time. And I just like, dude, I broke down and I was like, look, man, I have a problem. Like I, I'm hooked on this shit and I don't know what to do. And so they withdrew me from classes and they sent me to rehab. So it was my first like go in rehab. And this is in 2008. Okay. Um, so I know we're kind of jumping all over the place. No, but... we're, I, I think we're doing great. Yeah. Like, I'm, cool. I am following and I, I'm sure all our listeners are too. So awesome. go for it. So yeah, go to rehab. And that was my first real understanding of like, Hey, um, this is a problem right? This is, this is now something that you have to be aware of because, um, you are starting to see consequences from your actions and it's not just like fun. You're not just having fun anymore. Like now this is a problem to where like you can't stop and yeah. you have, you have to address this. Um, so I go to rehab. Was it inpatient, I, outpatient? It was inpatient. Yeah. It was a okay. 30 day inpatient. So I ended up withdrawing from school for that semester. Um, and it was an inpatient, went and successfully completed that. And then I had to do intensive outpatient while I re-enrolled back in classes in, in January. So I get back up to Boulder and I'm sober and I'm living not in the dorms now, but now I'm in a house with some teammates and, you know, that first semester was really, you know, I kind of got back to essentially like my first 
year at Mullen as a freshman, I was like really focused on school and really focused on athletics and, um, you know, went into that summer, you know, just really crushing it and was completely sober for about six months. Um, then I started smoking weed again. I was like, ah, I can smoke weed, right? You know, they, mm. you know, in addiction, a lot of people have struggled with this. They're like, yeah, I, I, I can just drink a drink or I can smoke a little bit of weed and I'll just be fine. Yeah. So I started smoking weed again um, and was managing it at the time. And then I go into the fall of 2009 and, you know, I got put on a, uh, a, I guess a preseason all-American team for freshmen. Like the, you know, they come out with the USA Today or whatever, they come out with their preseason rankings. And so I came out as a, a redshirt freshman all-American and I was starting. Um, and so I was playing football and I was going to school and I was doing all my shit and everything was great until it wasn't. Mm. Um, and that smoke, that weed smoking kind of slowly trickled back into now drinking more, partying more, um, and got back to sort of those junior and senior year days at Mullen to where mm. I was, yeah. you know, I was just doing my thing, but I was, uh, starting to slip. Well, that's the thing about addiction. It's insidious. It creeps in. Yep. It you does. Don't even realize it's coming back for you. Right. Until you're aware of like yourself and you're like, Hey, mm -hmm. I recognize this pattern. Right. But it takes time for some people. Some people get it on the first time. Not for me. Like, yeah, I may be, you know, I, I, I'm quick with some things, but I'm very um, stubborn in other areas. So, you know, I was like, yeah, I can manage this. I can handle this. I can get through this. And uh, yeah, so we'll fast forward a little bit. So played that season, did really well. Um, you know, kind of had somewhat of control on, under, under my life and um, really was doing what I could as a, you know, sophomore in college. Then, um, that off season started partying a little bit more, started really kind of spreading my wings, wings, so to speak about, uh, the friend group that I was hanging out with and started to say, okay, I can, um, you know, start to hang out with these people that are having fun and I can manage this and everything will be okay. Um, so we'll cut to summer of, of the next year. So 2000, this would be 2010 summer. Mm -hmm. And, um, I in fall camp. So right before the season, we have like a fall camp to get ready for the season. It's like a three week, you know, you have two days and have all that stuff. Shake off the cobwebs. I, yeah, exactly. So I got injured, um, in fall camp. And shout out to uh, my teammate who plays for the Green Bay Packers. And he's, a, I think he's in his 11th year, David Bakhtiari. He's just fucking killing it. Made a great career for himself. Um, done really well. But him and I were battling for the right tackle position. Um, and I got injured. And after that injury, um, I wasn't playing because I was injured. And mm -hmm. so I started really... Um, using at this point now it was Suboxone. So I started manipulate, not manipulating. I started abusing Suboxone. Um, what is I knew, Suboxone for all our listeners that may not know? So Suboxone, 
is a drug, is a medicated assisted treatment drug that they use to help people that have opioid dependency come off of opioids. Um, so pharmaceutical, like psych psychiatrists will like prescribe it to people who are struggling with, with opiates because it helps block your receptors from pain um, receptors. Yeah. Just like your, I don't know which specific receptors, but like the receptors that will, um, allow opiates to cross the blood brain barrier. And so it prevents you from getting high on on heroin or or oxy or any of that stuff um but you can also abuse it and you can get high off of it so i was getting high off of that during that season um you know played here and there but i was just battling that injury the whole year and so um you know i think i started a couple of games but i was had very sparse playing time and for me that was another like blow to my identity right yeah right um, so then I get into that off season now school, you know, I was full blown addict. I was full blown addict. Like I was, it was, what it does was that bad. look like? Like, what is a full blown addict look like to you? Well, I think it looks different for everybody, but for me at that point, it was like, you know, I was waking up, I was getting high. I was going, if I could drag myself to classes, I would get to classes. I was just skating by just like just skating by. Um, but I mean, at the same time, like I was, you know, I was smoking weed all the time. I started to drink more. Um, for me, it was like the consequences of my behavior were just basically building up on the back end that nobody saw. It was like all under the surface shit, mm -hmm. but it was just building up and building up and building up. And like, it became unmanageable. Um, and I would always manipulate went my way out of like, you know, trying to to grasp at some sort of, sort of management, whether that be through academics or through my team and the program or like some of friends. Um, but all this stuff was just kind of like bubbling under the surface. Mm -hmm. And I um, eventually it kind of came to a precipice where in this the next summer getting ready for fall camp, um, I. Uh, was out drinking and it was my birthday actually. And, you know, not to make this story too long, but the short of it is no, don't, don't give us the short. Like we, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So this okay, is your I guess, platform. Um, Let it rip. Yeah, man. So my best friend in high school, he yeah. was two years, two years younger than, than us. And we were partying. It was my birthday. Um, Funny enough, we were over at my house and we were coming back super late to go back to my buddy's house um, on the hill. And at the time, like world star hip hop was like a big thing, right? Like people, there was videos of like people like knocking out other people or getting in fights or like just crazy shit happening on the internet. And so like we were walking home and there was other people walking home from the bars and they were, you know, chirping and we were both drunk. All of us were drunk. And so, um, to a fight with another group of people and the kid dropped all of his belongings and and then the kids run ran away while well, I picked up his like phone and his shit. And uh, 15, 20 minutes later, like we're just outside of, of our friend's house 
and like SWAT, like just just rolls mm-hmm. in on us. Fifty cop cars, like everybody get down. They end up arresting and I. Um, they charged us with like assault and uh, robbery. Mm-hmm. So I wake up in jail the next day with the newspaper in the Boulder County jail. And I'm on like the front page of the sports section. And it says like, Givens is no longer part of the program. And so for me, that was like a huge blow, right? There was a new coaching staff that had just come in. Mm. I was trying to like, you know, make waves with them, you know, get healthy again. And again, this is right at the beginning of like when camp is going to start. And so finding out in jail, like, Hey, I'm no longer a part of this program. Now that identity, personal identity, school identity, all my teammates, all that shit completely gone, gone, evaporated, done. So from that point forward, um, you know, I, I knew that like I was a drug addict. I knew I had problems with substance use. Um, but for whatever reason, like, I couldn't shake it. And so I would always go back to like smoking weed or whatever. And so the next story is I go down um, because of my ability and my talents and because of the connections that I had made in high school with other programs, uh, you know, I reached out to some coaching, some coaches who were at Arizona state. Mm -hmm. So I go down to Arizona state and I'm like, okay, cool. I've talked with our coaching staff at the time. It was Dennis Erickson. He's like a legendary coach. Um, and they're like, yeah, you can join. We know what happened. Like we'll work with you on this. You can join our team coming in January. Um, and so this was the fall of whatever, 2011. Um, so I moved down to Arizona and I have to obviously be enrolled in school. So I enroll in Scottsdale community college and I'm like working out and you know, doing my thing, just like maintaining my eligibility. Um, and then one night, this is in November, I we're out partying, we're drinking. And the next thing I know, I wake up the next morning, like we were out partying and then I literally just like black out, wake up and, um, I'm in this like weird office space, like in downtown Phoenix. I have no idea how I got there. I have no idea what's going on. I walk up, I'm like lit in a lobby. Like I literally, it's this like big, beautiful building. I'm in this lobby and I go up to the desk and I'm like, where am I? And they're like, you're at detox. You got brought to detox. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I don't have a phone with me. I don't have anything. But what I did have on me was a ticket in my back pocket. So I look at the ticket and I, Later on, I get get back over to um, where I was staying and I call the police officer and I'm like, can you kind of give me a rundown of like what the fuck happened last night? And she's like, yeah, we got a call that you were in somebody's backyard with your shirt off and you were incoherent and he tried to approach you with a baseball bat and you just took the bat from him and you just stood there, but you weren't you weren't like you weren't causing an altercation, like you weren't physical or anything like that, but he called the cops on us cause he was worried about you. So we came and we searched you and you had a little bit of weed on you. So at the time weed was a felony in Arizona. Oh, so this is my f- Lord. Yeah. yeah. So again, um, just repeating like these episodes over and over and over again and not really like learning 
needless to say, like I ended up being, I got roofied that night. I didn't know I got roofied, but the, the police officer recommended that I go get a blood test done. Cause I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know what the fuck happened to me. Like I had one drink and then like, I wake up in detox and she's like, um, so anyways, I go get tested. I got roofied, but now I have a felony charge for yeah. marijuana oh in Arizona God. at this new school that I'm going to be going to in January. And I'm like, what the fuck? Hits so, keep coming. They keep coming, man. And they're relentless and they get worse and worse. Right. And so I have to leave Arizona because now like ASU is out of the window. So I go back to Colorado this is in the spring of 2012. I'm in school. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm sober at this point. Like after that point, like I was sober, I was like, look, I need to just like stop everything. Um, except for weed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Everything, but yeah. So I'm smoking weed and I'm working out and I'm like trying to figure out my shit and like what I'm going to do. Um, and then, you know, I'm kind of like dating, you know, we're living together and I'm in school. I'm not playing football. This is spring of 2012. And I get a phone call from a coach who played at CU, got arrested for robbery. He was a quarterback. His name is Bernard Jackson. And he was coaching for CSU Pueblo, which is a D2 school. And they were like the number one D2 school in the country at the time. They were like really, really, really good. And their head coach recruited me when he was at UCLA. So Bernard calls me and he's like, hey, man, like, we know what's going on. We heard all this shit. Like, we want to give you another chance to come play down here with us. So it sounds like last chance you exactly yes exactly Exactly. yeah that is like the one i will say football thing i do really know last chance you which is so funny because i've like never (laughs) watched it but i know of it like it's so funny it's very like like last chance you-esque like this this was literally that and it was a really good program with really good people they're like hey we're gonna have some expectations and like we know your past and your history and like we want you to come play down here and we think you can excel and like you still have an opportunity to like do whatever you want to do to reach your potential in football um so i decided to go down to csu pueblo and for that whole entire summer probably from like the spring all throughout summer um i was sober i wasn't even smoking weed you know i'm playing playing well but like week one or week two, we have a party and I, uh, I go over and some of my teammates are, are doing oxys and, you know, I have a history with oxy and a history with opiates and I'm hesitant to do it. But, uh, the, the addict in me is like, let's fire it up. So start doing oxys and really just, this is where my complete, spiral from a from a football and academics standpoint um really gets gets blown out of proportion in the sense that um, my life just becomes completely uh in shambles so Mm. play that season do really well on the football field and i'm you know there's a lot of athletes and i should say this there's a lot of athletes that are able to perform at the highest levels in sport and still be using alcohol and drugs um and still perform is incredible to me i after like two and a half drinks hate myself and then have the crappiest workouts and am just like i'm calling it i'm gonna go totally stretch i so that's (laughs) always what blows my mind because i become this inert object but 
I think that is one of the things about addiction. When you are in it, it is your norm. It's your status quo. It's your normal. Exactly. It's your baseline. It's your homeostasis. And so for me, that was like, yeah, I could operate just fine, perform just fine. Um, and so that's what I did. And I was doing really well. I started talking with some NFL agents. So at this point, that's my fourth year of eligibility. Um, and so our team, we end up going 12 and 0 in the regular season. And then we lost in the semifinals. So in, in division two, they have like a playoff system now, like division one has, but, um, we ended up losing to a team in the semifinals who would go on to win the national championship. And afterwards, um, after that season, I start talking with some pro scouts and kind of seeing, you know, what the horizon looks like. So I meet with them and they're like, right now you're projected like third or fourth round. Like if you were to leave this year and go like with mm -hmm. your history and just with everything, like you're projected like third to fourth round, like uh, the best case scenario. They're like, but if you go back to school for one more year, you have another year like you had this year. Yeah. Um, and you get your degree and you come back to us this time next year. Like we're talking, you know, second, maybe higher rounds. And we're talking about millions of dollars of difference, right? Yeah. So for me, I'm like, okay, I have a really big decision to make. And at this time, like I'm completely full blown doing blues every day. Blues are like at the time there were 30 milligram oxys. Um, and so that was my primary drug of choice. And I was doing, you know, a lot. I was doing five to 20 a day, depending on the day. Um, so basically all day, every day, that was my baseline. That was my homeostasis. And so I'm like, you know what? I can fucking get this, get my shit together again. This brand, this voice in the back of my head's like, yeah, you can do it. Um, so I decide to go back to school for my last year, my fifth and final year and, um, go give it a shot so that I can like really improve my draft stock and knowing, like looking back, it's so funny because I'm like, I knew all along that like, I had no shot. I had absolutely no shot to be able to make it through another year of like college and college football and just, you know. But with that being said, I decided to make that choice and I went back and uh, the spring, you know, we had spring ball. We were, you know, getting ready for the summer and finishing up school and NCAA comes in and they do a random drug test on six people on our team. And, uh, you know, I'd been getting high and I had mm -hmm. been doing, doing my thing. And so... I decided, I was like, well, shit, do I just take this test? Like try to flush my system and try to take this test. Yeah. Or do I not show up to the test, which is an automatic <sighs> one year suspension? Yeah, exactly. This is your, like your, I mean, and how, how at that point, how good at piss tests had you become? I'd become pretty good, but NCAA tests are like, you know, they're like, usada level they're like very they're legit as can be um so i'm like fuck it i think i can flush it took the test i ended up failing the test uh. so i now lost that last year of eligibility 
I go back and meet with my agent again or who was going to be my agent again. And he's like, yeah, no, you're, you're fucked. Nobody wants to touch you with a 10 foot pole. Like this oh, is wow. repeated offenses, repeated, you know, drug abuse. And like everyone's telling you, you have no comeback. Like you're, yeah. they're like, you're fucked. He's like, you can, yeah. He's like, you can, you can literally go and, um, you know, we can get you some tryouts. Like you could go try out and, you know, hopefully try to make a squad or be on the practice squad. And at that point I was so clouded in my decision-making ability that I literally quit. I quit <sighs> what I had worked my whole life for. I quit football. I quit everything. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that for me was like the turning point in saying like, when you talked about what does a full-blown addict look like? Well, I really wasn't a full-blown addict up to this point from the sense of like, okay, now I don't have any responsibilities or accountability or anything going on. Um, and so from there, I started selling blues. So I had a connection who... What do you, what, what is selling blues? blues mean yeah so blues are uh, like 30 milligram oxys okay and so that was before like the whole fentanyl thing like fentanyl is a big thing now yeah um but before this is kind of like right it's before Pur the purdue fentanyl. pharma yeah yeah purdue yeah, yeah exactly dope sick yep exactly and so i had a connection with a doctor a crooked doctor in california who would write me prescriptions um for an obscene amount of drugs. And so I was getting, I had 12 prescriptions. So what I would do is I would have, um, you know, my family members and friends and my, my family members, friends basically oh, give wow. me IDs so that I could get prescriptions <sighs> for Oxy. And at the, at the time I had like 12 prescriptions of 240, 240 pills um a month so and these are selling for a dollar per milligram so if anybody wants to do the math on that it's a lot of money um and so i start selling oxy and at this point i'm i'm still dating we're living together um i'm done with football and i was literally didn't have a job i was only selling drugs and you know our relationship to kind of tap back into like what relationships look like for addicts like was an addict at the time as well um, and so we were going through this addiction together and, you know, I basically, you know, got her involved with, um, with Oxy. And so we would do Oxy together. We would drink together. We'd smoke weed, all the things. Um, and that turned into a really tumultuous relationship really quickly. Like yeah. I was not present. She was not present. Like I was well, not. How, how can you be? How can you anyone you be? You can't. You can't, and you can't be a good partner um, if you're not on earth, right? If you're in the clouds all the time, like you can't be there. That is no partnership. That's no relationship. So from, from that point forward, um, nice relationship. At this point, we are dating for, you know, a couple of years now. This is, let's go like 2014. Um, we were living together, you know, we'd been arguing about shit. She wanted to move to Chicago and I didn't want to move to Chicago. And so, um, you know, a, a number of things happened in our relationship and we decided to break up. And as soon as she moved to Chicago and we broke up my, like, say I was on like maybe level 
four or five when yeah. we were together from like a drug standpoint to like level 11 um immediately started doing heroin like at that point you know i couldn't afford even with selling all the the oxy that i was it was like my habit had become so um you know my my tolerance was so high that like I was doing thousands of dollars worth of drugs every single day. And so the, the alternative is to switch to heroin. Yeah. I hadn't done IV at that point. So this is probably the end of 2014. In December of 2014 was the first time that I shot heroin. Um, and from the first time that I shot heroin, um, I was completely like hooked like I was already hooked, but now I was an IV drug user and that's like a whole nother level, right? It's like mm -hmm. when you start shooting it into your blood, it's like, it's a whole different thing. So, um, so yeah, when, again, I kind of go quick ahead. question. The first time you did that, when you actually injected it into your vein, were you, did you think, cause I've always wondered like, shit, this is it. Like there's no going back. Was there any hope or were you still telling yourself that lie that like you could handle it? Um, at this point, I think I was already so far gone because like, A, I had lost my identity with football. I didn't, um, you know, fulfill my own personal expectations. And I think this will come up again, but like expectations for me were like a huge, a huge thing. Um, but I had basically thrown away everything that I had worked for up into that, up until that point in my life. And so I was completely gone by this point. So like when I started shooting dope, like I was already like off the cliff. Okay. Um, my relationships with my family were just in the dirt. Like I didn't talk with my sister. I'm really close with my sister. Um, didn't talk with my sister. Me and my dad were always very close. Wasn't talking with my dad. Wasn't talking with my mom. I mean, I was full blown, like just on a death wish. Right. Yeah. Like I was just, I was just, you know, I was lost. Um, so yeah, I start shooting heroin and start selling heroin. And obviously my like entrepreneur, entrepreneurial nature is like, okay, well, I would rather, you know, not spend money on this that I don't have. I'd rather just like middleman this and start supplying my habit by middlemanning. And so that's what I did. And I started middlemanning. Break, break down middlemanning in yeah, the drug so basically, industry. Like, basically, I would have people who would want to buy drugs. And so I would get drugs from an actual dealer and sell that to my network of people for a premium and or like i mean you do shady ass shit like i would like pinch off of their sacks and stuff like that so like you're basically you're getting it at wholesale you're selling it at retail that's the idea of middlemanning um so that's what i started doing and it became to a point to where like i had enough sort of clientele to where i could then really start to get a lot more significant amount of drugs. So this story goes, I was, you know, picking up from this guy basically every day and I'd pick up like an ounce of dope from him. And then I would have my people who I would like sell, you know, three quarters of the ounce and I would have a quarter left to be able to do whatever I wanted with. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's essentially what middlemaning is. And I was going back every single day, every single day. And he noticed, he's like, Hey, he's like, you're picking up more from me than these other guys are 
selling on their own. So like, why don't we work together? And at that point I was like, fuck yeah, let's go. So, um, I, this guy, he was a cartel member and I started, um, getting, getting dope from this guy, both meth and heroin. But at this point I didn't do meth at all. I was just strictly an opiate user, but like there's big money to be made in meth. So we'd get a lot of meth and I would distribute it and excuse me. Um, and so I did that for, you know, several months. So basically December, January, February, March, April, I'm starting to, you know, build up clientele and I'm moving a decent amount of weight, you know, like yeah, decent amount of weight. And, uh, like a mid-level dealer and so like i was supporting my habit and i was making money and i was staying in nice hotels i was basically homeless natalie like i was um you know i could afford to stay in hotels because i was a drug dealer and so like we would just bounce around from hotel to hotel to hotel moving every three days and you're always on the lookout and you're always doing deals and you're always going to pick up or drop off and just sketchy fucking drug dealer shit um and then you know in april of 2015, um, I was doing a deal and I go to drop off the meth. So I sold more meth because like I kept the heroin for myself or just did like lower level deals. Cause just like there was less heroin to go around. So on average, we'd get like probably about 20 pounds of meth a month and probably like five to 10 pounds of heroin. Mm, um, my Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So what was street value of that? A lot. <laughs> quantify it like yeah, we're, so are like, we talking like five hundred thousand fifty? i yeah, have no yeah, idea yeah we're, ta- we're talking to the hundreds of thousands so Jesus. yeah um so it got to a point to where it was like you know and again to go back to the entitlement thing is like i would continually find myself in these positions to where like oh i'm entitled to do this because of the status that i have or the position that i have whatever in whatever like respective arena it would be right whether it's like academics or athletics or dealing drugs it's the same fucking shit um and so you know i i go to do this deal and i left the hotel and i had you know, you're doing all kinds of shady shit. Luckily for me, I was always like scared of guns. So I never really like carried guns and shit. But when you're a drug dealer, like you are dealing with some shady people. Right. And so I had a bunch of cash on me, had a bunch of drugs on me, had a bunch of, you know, Xanax. And, um, at the time I go to do this deal, I pull into the meeting place and it was a setup. It was a sting operation. And so, yeah, I had five pounds of meth on me. I had a bunch of Xanax pills. I had a bunch of, um, I had like, I think 70 something, it was either 70 something thousand dollars, $72,000 on me. Um, and I had a bunch of also fake currency on me as well. So I had a bunch of counterfeit money on me. Where do you get counterfeit money, Bryce? Well, like- when you're in these like underworld, if you're in the underworld circles, like you would be, you'd be surprised by. There's the a kind guy of shit for everything. See. There's a guy for everything. Wow. I mean, every literally everything. So, um, yeah. So, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I got arrested, um, and I, yeah, I got charged with um, possession and with the intent to distribute. I got, I got charged with the distribution case. Um, so this is, you know, April of 2015. 
um, I'm in jail, I'm withdrawing, I'm sick. And I'm like calling everybody that I can to like get me out of jail. So my mom and my grandpa, they bond me out of jail. And I'm like, I'm going to get my life together. I'm like going to stop this shit. Boom. One day out, fucking right back at it. And so at this point, like, I know that I'm fucked. Like I just caught a case with a lot of drugs on me. Like there's no getting out of this. That's my, that's my thought. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Like my life's over, like already I'm fucked. So, and, and at this point, you know, talking about full blown addict, like at this point, my mentality is just like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And not, it wasn't even that thought. It was just like, I'm so addicted that like, I can't see clearly on anything that like, I literally get out of jail. And the next thing I do is like, go pick up and try to get right back into it. Um, and then this is where the story gets really, really interesting. I know I've told a bunch of stories about like football and stuff like that, but like my 2015 was by far the craziest year of my life. Um, so I get out of jail and really get connected with, um, some people who were in the space and, uh, we, because I had lost my, my plug, my, my main connect, um, I had to find a new one cause I had to like keep keep up this, you know, this whole thing. I had to keep this going. This was your life. Um, this was, this was my just life. who this you were life. and what yep. you saw yourself as. Yep. I mean, committing crimes, like doing fraud, like doing fucked up shit, um, dealing drugs, using drugs, just doing like shit that I couldn't, I can't even barely think about to this day because I'm like, that's, it was like not even, it wasn't even me. Right. It was, it wasn't yeah. even me, but we end up, um, we had a connection. They had, they had a connection. It was a boyfriend, girlfriend who I kind of like teamed up with and they had a connection down in Tijuana. And we would literally for the entire summer from like mid April, like late April through November of that year or October of that year of, of 2015, I was basically on the road the whole time because what we would do is we would drive from Denver down to San Diego, and then we would walk across the border. We would have a team of people with us. So like six to eight people would be with us. We'd go pick up a bunch of drugs. So, so like meth and, and Coke and Xanax and heroin. And then we would literally smuggle it back into the United States, walking across the border. And I did this on repeat. So we would have our team here who would distribute it. And then me and my partner, we would drive down back and forth. So we'd go from here to San Diego, pick up, come back, drive, drop it off, literally stay for one night, turn around and do that again. Same car and every time? Would, no, no. We had different cars. Like yeah. We were like, you know, we were renting cars. We would, yeah, we had a bunch of different, you know, ways that we, we would stay at different hotels, do all the things different, like trying to watch your back and whatnot. So how was your paranoia at this time? At this point, it was, I hadn't started doing any meth um, until like maybe mid 2015. Um, <clears throat> so my paranoia was fine until I started doing meth. And for me, meth um, really took things up even more of a notch because meth like, induced psychosis is like i can't the even imagine how it can be taken up more 
like how I mean, does it go up another notch right but it, i guess crazy. it does it does it does and it's like and it's even intensified because now i mean you're doing these like nefarious illegal felonious activities that um you're always having like you can't trust anybody you're always watching your back like you're always switching up cell phones you're always like you're, you're doing just you're just always looking behind your back and so like when you're when you're in a meth induced psychosis too it's like it's amplified because like you're tuned into a different frequency than just like normal base reality like you're tuned in you're hyper hyper aware of of certain things whether they're real or not they're perceived as real and they're they feel real and they are they are real um and so yeah i mean the paranoia was amplified but at the same time you know they're we were addicts and we had to get our fix yeah. and so yeah. we would go to whatever length we had to to get our fix and to make money and to be able to support ourselves so that's what we did but that really stopped the last time we walked across the border in Mexico, and this was right around the time when they had just implemented, because you didn't even have to have your passport, Natalie, to go to walk across the border at this point. Like you could have your state issued ID and like you could, as an American citizen, walk across the border and then walk back across the border with just your ID. They implemented the change, nice. I think, right around October. Yep. <clears throat> so... The last time that we did this is you would have to go through the checkpoint, right? And they'd be like, yeah. well, why'd you come into Mexico? And so we'd buy cartons of cigarettes, right? And so we'd, every time we just go into Mexico, we'd walk back with a gang of cigarettes. So they'd be like, oh, they're coming over just to buy cheap cigarettes. So the last time we walked through, cause you got to walk through dogs, you got to walk through like, I mean, it's a checkpoint, right? It's an international security checkpoint. Well, one of the dogs flagged on my partner. Oh, and sweet. so they, so they took Jeez. him in and we have like ounces of heroin in our, in our ass, right? Like it's ridiculous. We get through, um, we both go to the second checkpoint and they let me go. Cause they question you, they sit you down, they talk to you because they know what the fuck's going on. Like, you know, at least I think that they do, but like, we're some like white boys who are like, you know, well enough dressed we don't look like the type who's like muling drugs across an international border but the dog flags on my partner and i get through the security checkpoint i'm going out, i'm waiting in the car uh an hour goes by he doesn't come out two hours goes by he doesn't come out this is an episode of to catch a smuggler which my husband and i love that show but that literally. is literally rice <laughs> sweet lord i can't i'm just i feel like your life it's like last chance you like are you a discovery channel like <laughs> that's right the way this like is when feeling. i tell these stories like because i don't get to talk about this i don't talk about this story often um i've shared it a few times with people and and you know people that are close to me kind of have heard these stories but like i don't get to share this story often and so like when you're like dive into it it's like here's my story and here's what it's all about and i think it makes my story um or just like my message more impactful for like the work that i'm doing now um so it's it's really important i think to kind of dive into this stuff to see how in disarray my life was and just like the craziness of it um i think there's some important points and like you know we had a lot of fun along the way and we you know we i'm not gonna lie like if it wasn't fun we wouldn't I, I have been doing it 
Right. I don't right? want to say the word was fun, but like, cause it wasn't fun. Cause it was like necessary, right? It's like physic, you're physically dependent on this shit. So it's like, you have to do this. And when you're withdrawing, it's literally the worst thing in the world, but I'm not going to lie. Like it was exciting. I think that's a better word choice. Like so it was exciting. You were not exciting. only addicted to the actual substances, but the process to feed the addiction. 100%. And I think wow. a lot of people get hung up on that too, is like, you know, the whole process is like, and that goes to say for like other addictions, right? Like food addictions and porn addictions and sex addictions. It's like, there's a process to all of these things, right? And so our brain like associates the entire process with dopamine release. Um, so, so yeah, needless to say in this story, uh, my partner after three hours comes out and he was like, he comes out and I'm like, I'm mesmerized. I'm like, how the fuck did this dude just make it out of like a full on body cavity search? He fortunately made it out. And that was our last time going across the border. Um, so while this is happening, I caught probably three or four cases over the course of 2015, just with like in the days or two days that I would be back in Denver. Were you skipping? Like, like how many warrants were like, how yeah, were you yeah, bailing out? I kept getting arrested and stuff. Yeah. So like I would get arrested and then I would bail out. Um, and like my mom, bless her heart. Like I put her through so much shit and like, she, you know, enabled me for a long time just because like, that was her only way of, um, thinking that she could help me. Right. Was to get me out into like, but I would c consistently just like, shit on her and shit on my family and just like you know i was again full-blown addicted and so the only thing that was important to me was like getting my fix and like becoming well that's what they call it like in when you're when you're a user the like they don't even call it get they don't even call it getting high it's like i need to get well that is oh my goodness yeah so yeah i'll kind of sum this up with you know i had a had multiple conviction or I guess charges, multiple court cases in multiple different counties. Um, and by 2016, so I was fighting all these cases and like, I mean, you're a lawyer, you know how this is like the, yeah. the legal process is really, really lengthy. Mm -hmm. Like it can be quick, quick for some things, but it's really, really slow for other things, especially if you keep adding charges. Offender, yeah. Totally. So with that being said, all of the kind of drug season, the, the drug season or chapter of my life kind of came to um, a conclusion mostly uh, when I got sentenced to a, um, I got sentenced for eight years to the Department of Corrections. They basically when, did what's known as When you heard that a, though, when you heard that, what was your... Reaction. I was I was really grateful because my presumptive range, my presumptive range was eight to twenty four years. So when I got sentenced to eight years, I knew that was the very bare minimum that they could have sentenced me. And yeah. so I was like, you know, I could have spent twenty four years in prison. Um, and so getting eight years, um, I knew that there was a shot because Denver is a really like progressive city, especially when it comes to drug offenders. And again, this brings up the point about like me not carrying any guns. So I don't have any violence charges. The, the assault that I brought up earlier that got dismissed. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't have any convictions of like violent crime on mm -hmm. my, on my, on my background. 
So fortunately, the judge, <clears throat> excuse me, the judge, give me one sec. The judge, um, the very case that was tried before me was a guy who committed homicide mm -hmm. um, and it was in retaliation and he, you know, ended up shooting this guy and killing him. And so that was literally the, the case that was heard right before my sentencing. And so the judge looked at me and he's like, look, one of the only reasons why I'm giving you this sentence is because you weren't out there like toting firearms and you weren't a being violent, violent offender. Right. So because all of my, my charges were drug related and because clearly I had a drug problem, um, the pre-sentencing like process you have to meet with therapists you have to meet with like case managers and all this stuff and they're yeah. like yeah you're you're definitely like a drug user who like commits crimes because of drugs mm -hmm. and so fortunately for me i was sentenced to this place called peer one peer one is a behavioral modification rehab it's a two-year program um, most of the clients that go to Pier 1 are coming out of the Department of Corrections. So they have been serving time in DOC and mm -hmm. have, you know, proven that they can be um, in a program, in a community corrections program that is drug related to kind of help them with their sentencing and their cases. Mm -hmm. So I get sentenced to this place and it, like I said, it's a two year program. And if you complete the program, then you can essentially get as much time as you have on your sentence reduced and you can start parole as soon as you've successfully complete this program. Huge incentive. So it's huge incentive. So if I yeah. complete this in two years, then I can knock that eight year sentence down to two and never have to go to prison. So I go to this program and I remember it was on Friday, I believe it was Friday the 13th. It was Friday the 13th of February, and I could be wrong about this. It might be the 17th, but it was in, in February of 2017. And I go there and, you know, you hear, because I had to sit in county jail for like two months before I went there. So I'm in county jail and there's people coming in and out and, you know, you're talking with people and like some of the people that were in there were like, yeah, I've been to Pier 1 and it's fucking crazy. It is the craziest place ever. It's the hardest thing that I've ever done. And so you have all these expectations about like what this place is going to be. But essentially what Pier 1 is, is it's a therapeutic community. All right. And it's very, very structured. It's militaristically structured. Um, you're what's known as off communications from the world. So like you don't have any phones. There's no cell phones. There's no calling your parent, there's nothing like you are off communications. And funny enough, Natalie, this place is a quarter mile away from Mullen high school. It, it's oh. this, this place is at Fort Logan. I knew it. So, okay. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yep. So it's so circular. I it's mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Hi everyone, Chelsea here. All I kind of have to say is, wow. So what you all missed is that I actually had the thunderstorm to end all thunderstorms and my internet cut out. 
So I got to listen to the rest of this recording after Natalie and Bryce had finished up. Um, and holy shit, there is no good place to pause on Bryce's story. It's just so incredibly intense. Um, but we need to bring it to you in two parts. So please join us next Friday for part two of Bryce Given's story, where we'll learn about his time at Pier 1, his true rock bottom moment, and finally how he's come out on the other side of addiction and how he's helping others to do the same. We will also have a question and answer session with Bryce to close out the episode. So if you have questions for Bryce about his journey, what he's doing now, please email them to us at the daily reframe podcast at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at the underscore daily underscore reframe. We can't wait to listen along with you guys next Friday. Have the best weekend, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Daily Reframe. We hope you gained a fresh perspective on how to approach life's challenges with a renewed mindset. Remember, every obstacle presents an opportunity for growth, and every setback can be a stepping stone towards success. Like what you heard today? Then follow and like The Daily Reframe podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at www.thedailyreframe.com. And for more content than fuels you, get social with us on IG, TikTok, threads, and all those other fine places by searching at the underscore daily underscore reframe. And if you want to dive even deeper into the topics we've covered, be sure to check out the episode show notes, where we expand on key takeaways and share additional resources for personal growth, transformation, and guest bios. And remember, we love hearing from you and about your own reframe stories. Until next time, keep seeking new angles, embracing change, and reframing your mindset to create the life you want and deserve. The Daily Reframe podcast and content posted by, created, and or distributed by The Daily Reframe is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on The Daily Reframe podcast in The Daily Reframe including information found on or distributed through its Instagram, TikTok, and website, or materials linked from the podcast, Instagram, TikTok, or website is at the user's own risk. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, professional coach, psychotherapist, or other qualified professional diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical or mental health condition they may have and should seek the assistance of a healthcare professional for any such conditions.